Hello, my name is Randy Ostra, President and CEO of Prometica. I'm pleased to welcome you to this eight-part series of healthcare reform discussions with nationally recognized health policy experts. These interviews will discuss Medicare policy, including healthcare pricing, long-term care, and the social determinants of health. This series is part of an ongoing two-year effort by more than a dozen hospital CEOs from around the U.S. to urge Congress to take up significant health care policy reform legislation, largely by calling for the creation of a National Commission on Health Care Reform. It is our intent that these policy reforms discussed during these interviews demonstrate our desire for substantive national reform. Moreover, that these interviews help to further inform congressional members and committee staff as they work to craft legislation to improve health care delivery and financing during the next Congress. Our motivation is straightforward. Well before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were adamant that race, age, and or economic circumstances should not be defined as pre-existing conditions. Nor do we accept the premise that Americans should be resigned to live shorter lives in poorer health. We invite you to listen to or to read the transcripts of all eight interviews. If you'd like to provide comment, you can do so via the contact information noted at the conclusion of these interviews. Welcome to this series of eight interviews concerning federal health care policy reform. I'm David Intracasso, the host. With me to discuss long-term care policy is Georgetown Public Policy Professor Judy Fader. Professor Fader, welcome. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be with you. Professor Fader's bio is posted with this interview's audio file and transcript. On background, the U.S. has no non-catastrophic long-term care policy, despite the following realities. The country is rapidly aging. By 2030, one in five Americans will be 65 or older. Two-thirds of those 65 or older need or will need some form of long-term care for an average of three years. 12% will need care for five or more years. While typically associated with aging, approximately 40% of those in long-term care are under 65. Among other facts, long-term care is unaffordable for many, since monthly nursing home fees can cost upwards of $10,000 per month, and assisted living can average four dollars to $5,000 per month. Care quality on balance is poor. Beyond the long-standing problem of antipsychotic misuse, a recent GAO study found 82% of nursing homes were cited for having infection prevention and control deficiencies. Not surprising, nursing home residents account for a disproportionate number of COVID-related deaths. Less than 10% of the middle-income population aged 45 or older own a commercial long-term care insurance policy, in part because insurers have substantially increased premiums over the past two decades. And family caregivers, or 30% of the adult population, moreover women, frequently suffer related emotional, financial, and physical hardship. Long-term care coverage for a vast majority of Americans in need can only be attained by purposely pursuing a legally complicated asset depletion or self-impoverishment process to qualify for coverage under the Medicaid program. So with that as background, uh, Judy, let me begin by asking you, as you're well aware, the Affordable Care Act had a long-term care provision termed the Community Living Assistance Services and Supports, or CLASS Act, 
it would have created a voluntary public long-term care insurance option. In 11, it was found to be actuarially unworkable and was soon thereafter repealed. Subsequently, in 2012, the Congress created a Commission on Long-Term Care in which you served, but it did not issue any recommendations. What can we learn from these failed efforts? Well, thanks for the background, David. Our approach to long-term care is long and troubled, and our failure to provide adequate protection for people who need long-term care reflects a lack of political will to invest in the significant needs of the 12 to 14 million Americans who need long-term care. Okay, thank you. Let's go to recent congressional activity. And as you're well aware as well, uh, within the Congress, there's been some renewed, albeit limited, discussion about creating a Medicare long-term care benefit. For example, discussion by Frank Pallone, the Energy and Commerce Committee Chair discussion, tracked with a 2018 proposal authored by you and colleagues at UMass and Urban and funded in part by HHS. Let's start with it. Can you unpack that proposal, uh, starting with eligibility? Sure. Let me describe the overall proposal. The proposal is to recognize that long-term care, the need for it, is an unpredictable and potentially catastrophic event. And that requires insurance. Private insurance for long-term care has failed. We need social insurance on the order of Medicare or Social Security to protect people against that unpredictable catastrophe. My proposal with Mark, that I developed with Mark Cohen would provide that kind of coverage, um, support for uh, uh, on a daily basis for people who need help with tasks of daily living, but only after a waiting period. And our proposal, unlike Mr. Pallone's, would have varied that waiting period with people's incomes, longer waiting periods for people with higher incomes. The purpose of that is to enable people who can to pay for services while they can, but to set some limit on that burden so as to protect them from catastrophe and to allow middle-income people with too much income to qualify for Medicaid unless they become completely impoverished to have a shorter waiting period to fill with their own resources or perhaps private long-term care insurance. Eligibility for benefits under this program, as we designed it, would be tied to a significant need for long-term care, which is typically defined as a need for assistance in two or more activities of daily living, like bathing or dressing or eating. Or an expected cognitive impairment, correct, for some period of time? Correct. They're also, as a, the, the standard of eligibility that we applied in, in our proposal and that Mr. Pallone, I believe, adopted, is the same as, is intended to be the same as the HIPAA standard, which is applied for tax purposes to private long-term care insurance. And the individual would qualify having had worked a certain period of time of employment, correct? The In our proposal, not Mr. Pallone's, it was designed as a contributory proposal, so very similar to Part A of Medicare to Social Security, where people work a certain number of quarters. 
but we found that if we began such a policy now and required people to contribute for 10 years, as they must for Social Security or Medicare, that much of the baby boom generation would not be able to take advantage of that benefit. Consequently, even if you if were ultimately contributory uh, in the in the to make us have uh, to have a significant impact in my lifetime, uh, we would need to support it with general revenue. Right, and I think the statistic is the entire baby boom generation will be at least sixty five by twenty thirty. So you're right. We the 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 ten years would miss a good percent. Uh, exactly, of the and baby. you could you. You could phase into that. It could be contributory in later years, but uh, both to meet a substantial need among a growing number of people and to be politically feasible, uh, it is. it would be a mistake to rely solely on a contributory finance. Right, right. So let's go. What, what, what's, what is the benefit? It's a cash payment? It, the benefit would be a cash payment. Uh, it could be it, there. It, alternatively, you could design it as cash or service and let the individual cho- choose. And at the time we wrote it, we picked, um, uh, I believe it's $110 a day as an amount to, that people could receive, but with no limit on it over their lifetimes. Okay, and let's go to the, the, the real rub here, financing. How would this be financed? We propose that it be financed with a surtax on the Medicare tax, which since the ACA was uh, adopted, is now a, a, a tax on, there is a tax on unearned income, and we would uh, propose to apply an, a surtax on that tax. And this, I think I read in the post, is a 1% tax, correct? If I remember correctly, yes. it obviously would depend upon decisions made and the, the the level of the benefit and number of people covered at the time that it goes into effect. Right. So you could dial it up or down, as they would say. Correct. Well, you couldn't dial it down much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... In this, with an aging population, we're talking about dialing up. And you asked me earlier what makes this issue so hard, and it's expensive. But the expense is now being borne by individuals, whether out of their own pockets or in terms of their family, the sacrifices that their families are making, as well as in providing insufficient care. Yes, thank you. Let's go to um, uh, impact. And you ran this by uh, some statisticians who tried to calculate what this would mean relative to increased um, uh projected increase in long-term services and supports, et cetera. So what are the areas in which, um, other than the coverage and less financial stress on, on, the, on the patient, how, how does this, what are the ripple benefits here? Well, the benefits, as you say, first and foremost, are for, are for people who, uh, and their families who are now going without care or making extraordinary success, uh, without sufficient care, or making extraordinary sacrifices in order to get that care. Uh, and so the, the, there is a, an advantage in terms of be a receipt of the care closer to the level of care they need. We now know that people are getting less care than they need and suffering serious consequences like falling or going without eating because of it. So the primary benefit is in supporting adequate care. There is also a benefit in terms of a 
um, a, a financial benefit, some financial benefit, although so much care is provided by families that much of the benefit goes as family relief. And finally, there's a benefit in terms of reduced burden on Medicaid because Medicaid, as our only uh, only program, public program for long-term care, is now bearing a burden that falls on states. Uh, States are in very different positions to bear that burden, and so it would, in addition, provide some Medicaid relief. Okay, thank you. So you do note in the report, Judy, that uh, there's estimates that the enhanced long-term services and supports would be increased by 14%. You do identify a percent of reduced out-of-pocket costs exactly. at 15%. And I, would, I pulled it up now if you want me to say it. Yeah, please, go ahead. So, so The analysis showed that 14% more would be spent on program services than is currently spent uh, to the advantage of beneficiaries and their families there would be a 15% reduction in family out-of-pocket costs and a 23% reduction in Medicaid as the new program assumed those responsibilities. Okay, thank you. So that's sure. so let me let me my last question on this is you did participate in some discussions with the chair of energy and commerce. What what's your what's your sense or summary of of how those discussions and panels uh, progressed? Well, Chairman Pallone has been very concerned about this issue for some time and is very committed to a Medicare benefit for long-term care, which means that it be available universally without regard to income. As I said, his proposal was quite similar to ours, but different in some ways. In particular, he thought that it would be simpler to have a a fixed waiting period of a couple of years, not the income-related period, and he also recognized that it was not neither desirable nor politically feasible to wait for 10 years for this program to go into effect. And so he uh, provided, he proposed that people would receive benefits from it, financed through general revenue, um, even including people who currently need care. Okay, thank you. So let's go to um, a, a companion proposal that you published more recently, and as as we're we're well aware, the the ongoing pandemic has put enormous pressure on state budgets, particularly uh, on state funding of Medicaid that accounts for on average twenty percent of a state's uh, general fund spending. Uh, you recently outlined uh, this proposal uh, relative to enhancing Medicaid in a Journal of Aging and Social Policy uh, piece. And that in part calls for creating an age-based funding index. So let's begin. Can you explain exactly uh, what that means? I can, but I want to go back a little bit. Please. And explain, and explain that even in the social insurance proposal that we just talked about, that proposal is aimed primarily at modest middle-income people who, who don't qualify for Medicaid. So it, it is, uh, recognizes that for very low-income people, we talk about a waiting period, they can't handle even a waiting period of a year once they need care. So our social insurance proposal envisioned the continued operation and even strengthening of the Medicaid alongside the new social insurance program that we proposed. 
the new proposal that I made was to recognize, to, to essentially to put that improvement in Medicaid in motion. What we know is that Medicaid is hugely valuable to people who need long-term care. It's, it's, it's essentially all we've got besides families um, and is very helpful in supporting people who need services now at home as well as in nursing homes. But states' ability and willingness to provide services under Medicaid for people who no long need long-term care has always been uneven. There's tremendous variation across states. And all states will be hugely challenged to provide services as the population ages. That's a long-term problem. And the short-term problem in which states are hugely threatened in terms of their budgets by the pandemic, both um, in terms of people needing Medicaid and other services, whether health or long-term care, um, and in terms of lost revenues, uh, they need immediate assistance. And my belief is that we ought to assist them immediately in enhancing federal resources, federal support for long-term services and support, uh, and use this as an opportunity to change the way in which the basis on which we match what states spend and include in that not only uh, a, a measure of income, we, we pay a higher matching rate to states with lower incomes, but I propose that we pay a higher matching rate to states with older populations. Real, measured as the proportion of their very their older poor population to their working population. So what it would do would be to alleviate the burden on the taxpayer of a relatively large older poor population. So you do state in this article that specifically you would enhance the federal uh, share or the so-called FMAP, uh, federal share of state uh, Medicaid spending based on a ratio of its population age 75 or over with incomes below 300%. So I do believe Maine may be the, have the oldest mean average, um, uh, so it may have the state with the, with the oldest population. So by way of example, Maine, for example, would get an additional percentage, uh, match, a higher percentage map, than, say, a state with a younger population, and I'm guessing it might be, say, California. So that's essentially well, how it would work, correct? That's, that's how it would work, but I'm leaving those specifics to you, David. I haven't looked lately at that list. Okay. Um, but again, uh, the, the bottom line here is that states with, with older populations, specifically as you uh, design here, uh, meaning those... Older with states, states with, with older, poorer populations Correct. as a shade relative to their working age population who largely pays for it, would get a higher percentage federal match. Okay, thank you. Now, there is another element to this proposal as outlined, again, in the Journal of Aging and Social Policy, and that is you're suggesting that the federal government uh, take responsibility for long-term care for dual eligibles. Is that correct? That's an alternative proposal. Okay, so that is so. It's is it either or? Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, and, and but either way, what the, the proposal what the proposal is is to enhance federal funding 
for Medicaid long-term care to alleviate both the variation across states, the inequity, and the inadequacy across states, an inadequacy that's going to grow over time with the aging of the population. Okay, thank you. Has this proposal been discussed or this idea have any discussion on the Hill to date? I've, sh- we, I've shared it with people on the Hill, and I, I would argue that it fits with our uh, with with lots of efforts that we are seeing to get more federal money to states through the Medicaid program. So it seems to me a, a timely proposal because they are looking at changes in the match of other kinds. Okay, thank you again. While we have a few more uh, minutes, uh, Judy, let me ask you, obviously you're well aware of proposals, related proposals uh, made by the Biden campaign over the last several months. Do any of these, uh, any proposals by the Biden campaign are particularly uh, of interest to you? Yes. The the Biden campaign fo- focused particularly on waiting lists for home and community-based services. The As we discussed, the uh, state's willingness to provide home and community-based services are uh, are often limited. Most states provide them under provide those services under waivers from Medicaid requirements that everybody who qualifies gets a benefit. The waivers allow them to cap enrollment, and that means that the services are falling significantly short of the need. The Biden campaign focused on the waiting list, but waiting lists are there, there because it's because it's a clear measure, it's clear evidence of a problem, but, they're, but they are poor measures. We know from looking at the variability of these services that they are inadequate in many places. And what I've heard discussed to implement the uh, campaign proposal is to make the home and community-based services, which are now optional under Medicaid, uh, mandatory which would be akin to the mandatory nursing home benefit. Now, home and community-based services are optional. Only nursing home services are mandatory. My belief is that to fulfill that promise, it will be necessary to pursue the other strategy that we talked about, which is enhanced federal match uh, for Medicaid, whether it be a bump in the match for home and community-based services, which was included in the House-passed CARES Act, or going further than that, going to the age-based long-term care match that I talked about. Okay, thank you. There isn't, we, won't, we don't need to get into this, but they did it in the proposal outline a pay-for for this. But I do, I am... I'm, 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 actually, I used the wrong act, David. It's the HEROES Act. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It may have been, yeah, can't have been in CARES. They passed CARES. It's the HEROES Act. Okay, in the HEROES Act, which, of course, the yeah. House passed, but didn't go uh, exactly. get to the floor of the Senate, correct? Exactly. The Biden campaign also mentioned this, establishing a long-term services and supports innovation fund. Do you have any idea, or can you expand upon what that amounts to? I, I can't, and I what I believe, as campaign pros, proposals often are, it was a signal uh, of interest in this area without a lot of detail. And what I would say about that is that uh, grant programs, which is what that sounds like, are not by no means a substitute for entitlements to 
uh, to needed services. So my hope would be we would go in the direction of an enhancement to Medicaid funding and to its benefits. Okay, I'll just note the Biden campaign uh, identified uh, tax credits um, for informal family caregivers, uh, also Social Security credits for people who care for their uh, loved ones or, again, informal family caregivers. There are various other issues. I do want to ask you about, and this is... Yeah, let me... Let me just comment on that. Please. I think that the supports for family caregiving are important, but it would be a mistake if we thought that by bolstering families we were solving the problem. It is given the the burden of caring for someone who needs extensive services. It to to um, rely on largely on unpaid family members and underpaid direct care workers, as we do now, is providing long-term care on the cheap. We invest less than other industrialized nations. We need to up our game. And support for caregivers will be welcome and important, but it's no substitute for a social insurance program that actually provides people the services they need. Good point. Well taken. Thank you. Let me do ask about one specific, and this is, this is cited repeatedly and relative to the quality issue, and we should touch upon it, it's important to do so. And that is, I saw nothing in the uh, campaign or the debates concerning uh, staffing ratios. This is always cited when we look to tr- explaining low care quality in long-term care nursing facilities. There is one state, California, that has, has passed a, a, a staffing ratio requirement. What's your sense at the federal level? I think it's an abdication of responsibility for the care that we're delivering in long-term care facilities. The, to pay, states pay nursing homes in various ways, but if, in the, and the worst is to simply pay them a daily rate and allow them to use the money as they see fit with no requirements. There has to be some kind of tie to direct services, otherwise we're paying for profit, not services. Medicare, which does not pay for long-term care, it pays long-term care providers like nursing homes for people who need skilled care, but not the personal care services that we're talking about. Medicare, by contrast, overpays nursing homes, allowing them to earn double-digit profits because we pay them in a way that um, does precisely what I said lets them take the money and not provide the services. And we have ample evidence that they are profiting and not investing in service. So what we need in both Medicare and Medicaid are payment methods that actually tie the payments that are made to the delivery of services, including to staffing, to to, uh, personal protective equipment, to other services that people need. Okay, and my, my final question for you is, and this is formula, there are state efforts at trying to improve uh, long-term care uh, for state residents. I'll mention one, the state of Washington has instituted a state payroll tax in an effort to try to create a social insurance benefit, long-term care social insurance benefit. What do you see coming from uh, the state or promising from state efforts that might be useful at the national level? I think it always helps 
to have a state do something that needs to be done as a push to federal policymakers and the as a demonstration that it can be done. We saw that in the Affordable Care Act in essentially Obamacare after the enactment and implementation of Romney Care in Massachusetts. So I think it's a big plus. But there is a, a, a tremendous uh, challenge to states in, in raising their taxes to provide these services because businesses and people can move elsewhere. So I would say it's, a, a, it's valuable. Those efforts are valuable to the citizens of the states that enact it, uh, that adopt it, and valuable as a lesson to us but I sure as hell hope we're not going to wait for a long time for those to, to, to watch those services come into play because we need to act now. Yes, and maybe just to revisit for my last question, the pandemic has certainly laid bare a number of inadequacies in how we deliver and finance care. And certainly it, it can be argued that uh, the greatest inadequacy, inadequacy or the greatest failing uh, the pandemic has has revealed and is in how we provide long-term care uh, in this country, particularly when you look at obviously the um, the the disproportionate effect on mortality from the pandemic relative to the number of infections uh, this population subpopulation has suffered. So, what what's your hope that we'll actually see uh, take this lesson seriously and because of the pandemic uh, drive towards some final legitimate long-term care policy? My hope is that there's outrage at what we've seen with the pandemic in nursing homes for both residents and caregivers. We're, we're treating residents and so-called essential worker, workers as disposable, and I find that horrifying. I hope that other people share that horror and that it motivates us to stop denying that it is a communal and therefore a government responsibility to assist people who need long-term care services, whether in nursing homes or even more importantly at home, where people want to be, people of all ages, uh, not just old people, but as you said, 40% of the people who need long-term care are under the age of 65. It's time we stepped up and took on that responsibility, and I'm hopeful that this horror uh, will motivate us to do precisely that. Okay, Judy, thank you so much for this review of uh, long-term care policy. It's very helpful, and I'm very appreciative. You're very welcome, David.